In this episode of the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast, we speak with Portland State University's Barry Still Professor of Choral Music, Ethan Sperry. But before we dive in, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the No Baton Needed podcast. And if you're in the Bay Area and listening to us before December 19th, 2021, please note the Choral Project is currently rehearsing for its annual winter concert with the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. Tickets for Winter's Gifts Stars, with two performances on Sunday, December 19th, are on sale now. Visit choralproject.org to purchase tickets. Now, on with the podcast show. Welcome. It's great to have you be part of our podcast. I've been a longtime fan of your work, both chorally and compositionally, so this is very exciting for me to have a chance to interview you. Thanks for having me on the show. The feeling is mutual. I'm a great fan of your work as well, and it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I'll just get some of our listeners up to speed as to who you are. You are deeply involved in many iconic choral activities around the world. So I'm going to list some of your roles in the same way that James Lipton used to do on Inside the Actor Studio. You're the, correct my pronunciation or saying this wrong, the bar still professor of choral music and director of choral activities at Portland State University. And you also conduct the world-renowned chamber choir there. You're the artistic director and conductor of the Organ Repertory Singers, another really well-acclaimed group, the editor of the Global Rhythm Series for Earth Songs Music, and you serve as a consultant for Kia Music Conservatory in India's Classical Music School in Chennai. And that prestigious list doesn't include all your accomplishments as a composer and arranger. That's just your conducting stuff. Did I get everything? Is that the whole list? You did. The only thing is that it is the Barry Stoll professor. Barry Stoll. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was a French name or... Uh, no, it, or it's not, a weird so. way to spell Barry. You're not the only person who gets that one wrong. But yeah, Barry Stoll is uh, the woman who endowed my professorship. Got it. Wonderful. So which of the current roles and responsibilities that you have has taught you one of the most impactful life lessons? Wow. Boy, that's a big question to, to start with. Of all of those, being the director of choral activities at Portland State is the only full-time job there. And so that's where I devote the most of my attention. And I've always been ambitious, and especially as I started uh, reaching out in different ways, there have been lots of opportunities for me to travel and to do a lot of guest conducting work, especially in Asia, which I just I find so exciting, especially in Southeast Asia, trips to India for research. But especially with this job, running a graduate program and assisting in a really successful undergraduate program in music education, I really like to stay home more and travel less. And part of that is also the age my biological kids are, are too. But the less I travel now and the more I invest in my actual choirs and my actual students instead of the guest jobs, I, I find that more and more rewarding. And I see so many people in my field jetting all over the world, and, and that's great. But at least at this point in my life, I really want to tend to my own garden as at least as much as I want to help other people tend theirs. The graduate program at Portland State, is it just at master's level or do you also have a DMA level? Right. It's just at master's level. And uh, just a quick plug, uh, I'm pretty sure we are offering our master's students more podium time than anybody else in the country. At least I've had people apply from all over the place and nobody's contradicted me on that. But my first conducting teacher, who was uh, Robert Spano, who's an orchestral conductor, told me, the, look, the best way to learn to conduct is to conduct. And the second best way is to watch somebody pretty good conducting. And the third best way is to get a teacher. And uh, I think that's really true. It's actually true of a lot of things. Like the best way to learn to play the piano is to play the piano, meaning practice. 
And the second best way is to watch somebody pretty good playing piano, which means like listening to recordings or, or going to concerts. And the third best way is to get a teacher. A teacher's job is really to guide your practice. But if you can't, if you don't practice the piano, it does not matter who your teacher is. You're just not going to get better at playing the piano. The problem with conducting is you can't go home and pull out your orchestra or choir and practice. I mean, conducting in front of a mirror, it, it's not the same thing. I mean, it's helpful, but it's sort of like drumming on a desk with your fingers and imagining what it's like to play a piano, unless you actually have a piano there. So for me, running a graduate program, I've got to have the students running ensembles and like actually having the practice being up in front of choirs. So that's much more of a priority to me than having them sing for me or be in a conducting class. Like They've just got to be up in front of groups. It's really fantastic. But people may not realize that um, when you're standing at the podium conducting, there's more than conducting technique that is actually going on there. Of course, you want all the gestures to be just right and, you know, match the affect of the sound that you want back and whatnot. But additionally, there's also a rehearsal technique that needs to happen. How do you dissect the parts? How do you diagnose what the problem is and solve it? And then vocal technique issues, trying to create you know, the ensemble technique for the singing going on. And those are things that you also just cannot, you can practice your beat patterns at home until the cows come home, but the other things really do require a podium. And so that's just fantastic that you have given your students that much time on the podium to be able to learn and grow in that way. Yeah, we've grown some. When I got to PSU 11 years ago, we had two choirs, and now we have seven. And the wow. chamber choir is really the only group I conduct. Some of the others I co-conduct with the graduate students, and some, they're completely on their own. But yeah, they get a lot of time like actually running these ensembles, which is fantastic. And what you said couldn't be more true. And it's a real difference between choral conducting, where even at the upper levels, most of the members of our ensembles have had relatively few years of voice lessons. Even in my auditioned collegiate chamber choir, a lot of the students are just getting voice lessons, private lessons for the first time when they get to college. You would not find a college band or orchestra like that, where the students were just starting private lessons. All of them have started much, much younger. And so when you do the physical gestures for a band or orchestra, they can absorb so much more just from the gesture. But choir directors, especially at the younger levels, need to be able to teach their singers to sing. They have to be the voice teacher because the students aren't getting that elsewhere. And then as you just brought up the listening techniques, what it takes to build that ensemble sound, that's not something that can be taught anywhere. And I've worked with too many choir directors that don't teach it at all. They sort of think once their singers are just singing the right notes, that's all there is to it. But I don't care how beautiful your physical technique is, your singers aren't going to sing in tune until you teach them to listen. That being said, if your physical gestures are bad, you can take a really good ensemble and wreck it. There is a lot of value to good stick technique. <laughs> I don't think it gets choral directors nearly as far to just have good like physical podium technique as it gets instrumental conductors. I think we need a larger skill set that needs to be developed in rehearsal. And of course, some of this comes from the fact that an individual can't really start studying voice with what is going to be something similar to their adult voice until they finish going through puberty. So right off the bat, singers typically start much later in their study than a pianist that could start it. I mean, I started when I was four. So by the time I got into high school, I was already quite advanced. But if you're a four-year-old, that's learned how to sing in a, a children's choir and your voice changes, you have to relearn your instrument. You're basically starting over. And so you're exactly right that the person at the podium has to guide them and has to teach them and has to teach them how to listen as well. So that's right. And when, when my friends come to me and ask me to recommend a voice teacher for their kids, if their kids are young, I actually suggest they take piano lessons. 
it's much more helpful for them to learn to read music. And as you said, yeah, there's only so much you can do at the younger age. But at least singing in a children's choir, you can start learning some of those oral skills that you just mentioned, how to listen, how to sing in tune, how to match vowels. There's still a lot that can be done for somebody's musical skills, singing in choir at a young age, even if their voice is going to change. How exciting. I have to come visit and, and watch you do your magic. Well, there's a sign hanging above my head in my choir room, and I also just got a run of pencils that say it on there that say, singing is listening, is singing, is listening, is, singing, <laughs> is listening. And it goes on endlessly uh, around the pencil, which is fun. And I now have boxes of them free, so when my students forget their pencil, they can get one of those and remember what they're supposed to be doing in choir, which is not just singing the right notes, but, but listening to each other. Right. It's such an important part of the process. And I was lucky to have a college choir director, uh, Jim Marvin, at Harvard, who really taught us how to listen. He's wonderful. When I was at San Jose State, he came in and did a guest workshop with the Coriliers when I was studying with Charlene Archibald, and he was just terrific. Uh, really, really exciting. He did such good work there at Harvard. Yeah, he's phenomenal. So let's rewind a little bit and talk about your childhood. Mm -hmm. You began studying conducting at the age of eight, which is really incredible. And then cello when you were 12, and then singing when you were 18. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it's obvious you were going to be a musician. And your father was a singer, and your mother was a sculptor, correct? Yeah, you've got all of that right. And actually, for a long time, I really didn't want to be a musician just so I could do something different from my father. I started piano, actually, when I was six. I asked for piano lessons. And then my father was teaching at the Aspen Music Festival in the summers, and we went out there, and I was eight, and I went to my first orchestra concert, and apparently I was fascinated, and I asked about who the conductor was and what they did, and my parents talked to Murray Sidlin, who was the head of the conducting program at Aspen, and asked if he had a student who would come teach me something about conducting, even though I was eight. And so a man named Peter Bay, who's now the conductor of the Austin Symphony in Texas, came and gave me some conducting lessons that summer and for the next few summers. And I learned all the basic beat patterns. Uh, I learned uh, the score order of everything in the orchestra, all the instruments, a little bit about transposing, where they all sat. And it was actually kind of adorable. He did this drawing of the orchestra so I could see like where all the sections were. And then on the podium, he wrote my name. Uh, so it said Ethan on the podium. And my mom actually saved that. I didn't know she had saved that. We actually found it in her desk after she died. So I still have that drawing that he made for me when I was eight years old. And then when I got to middle school, I joined the orchestra and uh, picked up cello and I quit piano at that time. I couldn't find the time to practice two instruments a day. And boy, do I wish I hadn't quit the piano at that time because my piano skills sound like I'm someone who played from first through fifth grade. And uh, I did not join a choir or do any singing until I got to college. I went off to Harvard thinking I was going to be a physics major who played in the orchestra. And uh, I got to auditions for the orchestra, and I didn't even come close. It's not just that I didn't make it. I realized I was never going to make it into the Harvard orchestra. But, like, I mean, there were 17 people auditioning for two spots, and... Boy, a lot of people would have had to vanish. My freshman roommate had sung in the California All-State Honor Choir, and I'd heard the Harvard Glee Club sing at Freshman Convocation, and they were great. And he's like, come on, you know you want to do music. Come to choir auditions with me. And uh, so I did. I went to choir auditions, uh, never having sung in choir. And because I was a tenor who could read music, I sailed straight in. And my roommate, who'd been in the California All-State Honor Choir, did not make it into the Harvard Glee Club because he couldn't read music. Wow. Um, this was back in the 1980s, and it says a lot for how ACDA has changed things. I mean, you cannot make it into the California All-State Honor Choir now without a sight-reading test. But right. at the time, they weren't doing it. And 
when the Allstate started pushing sight reading, it really got teachers to focus on the sight reading aspect of what was going on. So, yeah, once I got into the Harvard Glee Club, I really never looked back. By junior year, it was pretty clear to me I was going to be a choir director, and that's what I really wanted to do. But it took me that long, partly, I think, just because I was trying to differentiate myself from my father. But yeah, I'm very happy to follow in his footsteps. You know, what do you really know when you're a teenager? So did you do your undergraduate degree in what was the specialty in music? I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy, if you look at my diploma. But it really should say I did my undergraduate degree in choir, because that's all I spent my time Uh, But Harvard doesn't have a music performance major or a music education major. So I sang in the Glee Club all four years. Uh, I took over conducting the acapella group that was part of the Glee Club my sophomore year. And that's where I got a lot of my podium time. Like I was running rehearsals for an acapella group for three years in college. Not too many music ed majors get to do that. And then my junior year, Jim Marvin went on sabbatical and his assistant, Scott Tucker, took over. And I got to be Scott's assistant, even though I was an undergraduate. And apparently I did a good enough job that Jim kept me on for my senior year. So I was actually the assistant director of the Harvard Glee Club for a year and a half when I was in college. And then my senior year, just for fun, I started a student organization just so I could conduct a production of Carmen in the dining hall of my dorm. And it had no music majors in it. And I got a full orchestra. I got the whole cast pretty much from people in the choirs. And uh, despite the fact that I had no intention of other than putting on one show, that student organization still exists. And over 25 years later, someone puts on a production of an opera in the dining hall of my dorm. Uh, And it's really cool. And until recently, they used the same weird stage that we built that could be assembled after dinner and then torn down before breakfast the next morning, every single day for the run of the show. And by that point, I knew I wanted to be a music teacher. So I had talked to New England Conservatory and they had a program where I could have done a fifth year of undergraduate and gotten a teaching credential. And I had taken a decent number of music classes while I was at Harvard as electives. But A private school, a junior high high school called the Roxbury Latin School, called me out of the blue and they were a private school, so I didn't need a teaching credential. So I actually became a junior high and high school music teacher right out of undergraduate. What an incredible time that you had there. That How exciting. And and just terrific that the tradition that you started with, you know, opera after dinner is still going on. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. So looking back at your music education, um, is there a bump in the road that you wish somebody had alerted you to that you could share in the hopes of helping someone on a similar path of music now? I actually think it's the reverse. I mean, the hardest time I actually had was my first year teaching. And that's true of a lot of people. But I didn't even really have an education degree. And even though I was very qualified to run the choirs at the school, boy, was I not qualified to teach the classes. And boy, did I have no idea just how much prep I was going to have to do for the various classes. The teaching load was also patently absurd. And that job almost killed me my first year. And then the second and third years, it was some of the best work I've ever done. And the hardest decision I've ever made was to leave that job and go back to graduate school. And I think about it a lot. I actually have dreams that I'm still teaching there. And in those dreams, I'm actually pretty darn happy. You know, I I really love being in somebody's life at the high school age. It's It's a really exciting thing. But I actually think the thing is the reverse. I was given all these opportunities with far less experience than most people normally have when they're given them. And I excelled because I had to. And I think we should do that to people more. I think we insist that they take all these classes for things that they really need to learn by doing. And it's the same reason I give my master's students free reign over all these collegiate ensembles, because I believe they really can do it. And that's how they're going to learn to get better. They're going to actually get much better by making some mistakes in those college ensembles with me as a little bit of a backstop so that they can get on track rather than me teaching them a class about how they might do it someday. 
And uh, I think if anything, to people out there that are teaching conductors, give people more opportunities sooner. They can do so much more than you think at a younger age. And it's the same thing for my choirs, even like at the middle school and high school level. People want to rise to a challenge. They will work much harder to rise to a challenge than they will work to coast through something that's easy for them. That being said, like the bump of the first year teaching, uh, I don't know that I've got any advice for that <laughs> other than all the, I mean, like there have been books written about how to get through the first year of teaching. I don't, I don't yeah. think I'm going to enlighten that on the podcast. It's rough. It is hard. I think that no matter how prepared you are, you don't really know what it is until you get there. And every school is different you know, depending on how their feeder programs are, or the district, or is it in a, in a more impoverished area? I mean, there's just so many challenges and tangibles that are hard to sort of know before you get there. Yeah, but that's the greatest thing about our field. You can build an award-winning choir in any school. Absolutely. And uh, we see that in Oregon. The best schools in Oregon in no way track to the richest communities. Um, yeah, it's the same. It's the same here. But they certainly do track to the teachers who are really committed to giving students a meaningful experience through music. When you do that, they will come out of the woodwork. And you, know, you have to do a lot of glitz often to get them in the room, but they'll stay once they understand why music is great. Not, not every kid will stay, but just like, you know, we spend so much time and energy in our society at large trying to convince kids that sports are great. And a lot of them, like me, hate sports, no matter how much they're forced to do it, or maybe because. But because of the forcing it, a lot of kids really do fall in love with it. And I think if we forced choir the same way, we'd have a ton of choir kids in the world. And what a world that would be, because I think when you learn to sing with other people... I've often said that choirs are a microcosm of how peace functions, because you can have people from very different belief systems, backgrounds, and they come together and they all agree to do something that's greater than themselves. And then you come out with this amazing, beautiful product. Can I quote you on that? That's truly beautiful. Choirs sure. are a model for how peace happens. Sure. I've been saying something similar. One of my taglines for the past year is that choir teaches the two skills that are most lacking in the United States right now. It teaches listening and empathy. Absolutely. Same things, but those are also the key ingredients to peace. I guess it's the same story that happened to me in college when I wanted to be a cellist in the orchestra and wound up, I think, being much happier in choir. That keeps happening to me. There are two times in my life where I really changed jobs, and both times I had my heart set on one specific job, and I didn't get it. And both times I got other jobs that I didn't really think I wanted that have been dream jobs for me. And I'm a planner and I really like to know where I'm going because, look, if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to get there. But I think I know where I'm going and then a left turn happens and I'm much happier having turned left. And I guess it is. I mean, these jobs didn't happen by accident. I did throw my hat in the ring for them because they're worth exploring. But I know for a fact that the two jobs that I really wanted, they would have been terrible jobs for me after the fact. You know, and, and, and maybe life is like taking care of me or I don't know, but just some of the days, like the day I didn't get into orchestra at Harvard, I thought it was one of the worst days of my life. I mean, I was crushed when that happened. And it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I just, people should be more open to that. Learn to love where you are in your life at that moment. Yeah. Or a failure might just take you down a road that might be better for you anyways. Do you have a mentor or someone who you aspired to be as a child or a teacher that you've never forgotten that you would thank in like an Oscar speech? The first one I would thank is actually my high school physics teacher, which is why I thought I wanted to be a physics major in college. His name was Doc DeSantis. Uh, he actually had a PhD from Columbia and he wore a lab coat to teach, even though he did no experiments in his class. And he smoked his chalk 
I mean, he just like held it in between his fingers and his lips as if it was a cigarette. Um, and he had all these nervous habits and, you know, the two day growth of beard. And he, he just looked like a mad scientist and he was truly brilliant. And he made me want to be a physics major in college until I went to college and realized that it wasn't like his class. His class explained how everything in the world worked and other people were just teaching us to do equations. And I often wonder if I'd been at a different university where there was more hands on teaching that goes on at Harvard, whether I would have been happy. I don't think I would have ever been happy as a physicist, but I think I really could have been a great high school science teacher trying to do that. But I guess what I learned from Dr. Sanchez is that a great teacher can inspire you to love any subject, and a bad teacher can wreck your love for almost any subject. I know I say my title as a conductor, but I really think my role as a teacher, especially in front of a choir. I don't think it's a leader position or, you know, an ego position or, I mean, like so often it's the person who stands up and gets all the credit. But no, I'm there to teach my ensemble about the music and I get the job because I've spent more time studying the music than they have, not because of I'm like some superior human being. That's all I really want to be. And I went to Harvard where most people really look down on teaching, you know, that it's sort of a second class job. Our society does. People at Harvard go on to become doctors, lawyers, and businessmen. 75% of my graduating class had either completed or was in law school, business school, or med school by my fifth reunion. You know, and those are the lucrative jobs in, in our right. society. Um, and, you know, uh, in my fifth reunion, all these people looked at me blankly when I told them what I was doing and deadpanned, how great that you're doing what you love. And uh, I think I'm a lot happier than most of them, even though I know they make a whole heck of a lot more money than I do. Well, and of course, the irony around that is that all of those people who've gone on to be successful doctors, business and lawyers, or et cetera, got to where they are because of a teacher. So this idea that teachers are a second-class citizen, well, if it hadn't been for them, you wouldn't be doing what it is that you're doing right now. So how invaluable really are they? It's a completely underrepresented, underappreciated craft in the world, in my opinion, certainly in this country. I mean, I guess the two other people that I put on the list more recently, maybe three. I mean, one is Robert Shaw. And I just mm. had the privilege to sing in his Carnegie Hall workshops four times. So I spent four weeks with Robert Shaw as one in a group of 200. You know, I got to shake his hands a, a, a couple of times. If he were alive, he wouldn't be able to pick me up out of a lineup. But we have this reverence for him in the choral field, and it's just true. He was just that good at doing this. I and mean, I guess I'm one of the younger people who got a chance to sing for him that's left alive. But he really was that good. And it's the, he said, like, yeah, I don't need to teach. Just sing in my choir and I can teach you how I do what I do. And he did. That's all I needed to do to pick it up. And if people really want to know what I do at graduate school, I can teach the conducting class, but they're going to learn more by being in my choir. And I learned that from Robert Shaw. And then they get their own choir to put that into practice. And yeah, we've got a class in it, too. But there's that one. There's a man named Tito Dejan. He's French, grew up in Haiti and Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, who I stumbled on completely by accident, who is sort of the heir to this very weird score study system that was developed in Romania by a guy named Constantine Bugierno. And it's the most brilliant score study system in the world. It's a little bit similar to Julius Herford's umbrella analysis system, but I think it's better. It's a large part of my dissertation. Dejan now teaches in, in Germany. We've been trying to get this score study system out there, but it's phenomenal and, and should be a better tool taught to people. Because throughout all of my graduate education, I never really learned how to study a score. And uh, I stumbled on him by accident, and he really taught me how to study a score. And then one of my best friends now, and one of the few ways you get mentorship at this point in career, I've had the good fortune for my students and my adult choir to get to sing with the Oregon Symphony. And their music director, who just retired, Carlos Kalmar, has been 
just amazing to watch how he treats a choir in that context, to be a partner with me. And during COVID, he had nothing to do and actually came in and taught my graduate conducting classes with me for free. I just think for all of us, we need that breath of fresh air. And a lot of us get it by sabbatical. I've never taken one. But just at any point, inviting in someone who's more experienced, older, been around the block more than you, it's just so helpful. And to have that this past year, as I was turning 50, was just so valuable to like remember I'm not all alone up here. And there's, there's always places to turn. But what you said, yeah, we need mentorship at all times in our life. And uh, this will be the cheesy one, but it really is true. Uh, I learn so much from my students every year. And as soon as you start thinking you know everything, you're in real trouble. Uh, and when students start asking questions, take them seriously. And sometimes you know the answers, but when you don't, that's an opportunity. It's not mm-hmm. a failing. I'm going to jump over to some of the work that you've been doing around the globe. You've performed in some iconic venues on the planet in more than 20 countries. Is there a concert hall or a country that ranks as the most unforgettable for you? Yeah, and I don't know if I ever got to go back to it, if I would feel the same way. But the concert hall that stands out the most vividly to me is the National Concert Hall in Taiwan. And I didn't get to conduct there. That was No, I guess I got to conduct one piece there. It was my senior year in college. I was on tour in Asia with the Harvard Glee Club as a singer and as the assistant conductor. And that was our last concert. I'm not even sure if I have the name right, but I just think it's the National Concert Hall of, of Taiwan. It's it's just truly exquisite, beautiful in terms of its its physical beauty and the acoustics of it, like balconies that are made out of pink marble and all these adjustable sections of the stage so that when we walked out onto the stage, the stage elevated into our risers. There were no platforms or things that needed to be moved around and all these different configurations. You could do it for orchestra and choir and it just struck me as a concert hall that was built with all the 20th century knowledge of what a good concert hall ought to have instead of. So many concert halls are replicating old ones without thinking about what could be done better, uh, like on the technical sides of things. And your experience there, was it easy to hear? Sometimes an orchestral-style concert hall can be difficult. No, it, 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 it had both the audience gets a ring and the choir can hear really clearly, not muddily. Like, you could really hear across the stage. There's a transparency on the stage, and yet that reverb you want in the audience to, like, know that you're doing something. So one of the many reasons we wanted you to be a guest on Nobaton Needed is because this year... The Coral Project is celebrating its 25th anniversary and looking backward and looking forward. And this podcast is featuring artists in the choral community, moving the art form into the future, contextualizing choral music in new ways, exciting ways. You've studied Indian classical music and arranged some breathtaking Indian ragas. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about the discovery process, the artistic process of doing that given that Indian choral music isn't as commonplace or prolific in our culture. I guess I'm going to start by saying that I've been a huge fan of Indian food and Indian music really since I was in high school. And when I was teaching junior high in high school, I actually lived in a neighborhood where there were tons of Indian restaurants in Boston. And my roommate, who was Latino, and I, our favorite restaurant, we really wanted to learn to cook from them. And so we volunteered to just wash dishes in the kitchen for them if they would teach us how to cook. So I guess I learned to cook Indian food even before I really started studying Indian music. But of course, you go to Indian restaurants and where you get exposed to the music, both the classical and the Bollywood music. I'll also say it's one of the few times I've almost killed myself because we learned early on that one of the secrets to Indian cooking is they heat the oil and then they activate the spices in the oil before they put in anything else. The spices are not something you add later. They actually go into the oil, like as an infusion. But if you heat the oil too much, you don't actually infuse it. You actually burn the spices. And if you burn mustard seeds in your house, it actually releases a form of mustard gas. 
and then you have to evacuate your house. So there's there's just a small <laughs> difference there. So just be careful if you're going to oh, go down that no. road. <laughs> So I've been doing choral arranging ever since I was a sophomore in college and took over my acapella group. And it's always been a joy for me. And I've kept arranging ever since. I've loved to do that. I had some formal training finally when I was a graduate student, but I really learned arranging by just doing it with my group. But in grad school, I got to study choral arranging with Morton Lauritsen, who, in addition to being an amazing composer, is an extraordinary teacher. And for somebody whose music speaks with such a clear voice, and a lot of people sort of ding him for his pieces sounding similar to each other, I think that's a mark of a great composer. I mean, you can tell in 15 seconds if it's Mozart or if it's Beethoven. Their pieces sound just as similar. I think Lauritsen has a distinct voice. But as a teacher, he didn't try to get us to sound like him. He really understood how to try to get us to sound like ourselves. And that was just really cool. So I had some great training as a grad student, and I got to my first college job at Miami University in Ohio. And there was this really nutty guy named Srinivas Krishnan there. He had come from India to Miami of Ohio to get a master's in engineering. And then he had gotten a job for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati as an engineer. But he was a really wonderful Indian tabla player and vocalist. And he was coming up to the university one day a week to run his own group called Music of India Ensemble. And when I first saw it, it was three flutes, a trombone, and a cello, all playing an Indian raga in unison while he accompanied on the tabla. And I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Have you ever wanted singers? And he said, absolutely. We've just never had any interested. So I went out looking for the Indian music for choir, and I found one piece, a piece called Dravidian Dithiram, written by Victor Paranjati that was published by Earth Songs. And it was a cool piece, and it was like 90 seconds long. So this wasn't going to give us a concert, but we learned it. It was a great piece. But I decided, okay, I'm just going to have to arrange this myself. And I think sort of the genius of what Srini was doing with his ensemble compared to other schools, Srini's not an ethnomusicologist. But for most of us in this country in ethnomusicology, studying the music of another culture means learning their instruments. That's sort of the box. Like, if you want to study Indian music, you learn tabla, or you learn sitar, and you learn to play it the way they play it. And some people would say Srini was thinking outside the box, but I just don't think he thought there even was a box. Like, nobody had taught him about the box. He's like, the music goes like this. Of course you can play it on your flute. Of course you can play it on your trombone. Of course you can play it on your cello. Srini didn't read Western music, so he would just sing them the melody, and they would transcribe it, and then they would learn to play it. And while Indian music is traditionally improvised, Srini had no training in teaching them how to improvise. So he would just sing a long and complicated improvisation, and they would write it down and learn it. And that is the way a lot of people still learn to improvise in jazz. I know people that have gone to Berkeley and, okay, you're going to transcribe this Dexter Gordon solo and learn to play it exactly like he did and learn what's great about it. That's a valid way to learn to improvise. But, of course, ensembles can't improvise. Three flutes, a cello, and a trombone can't all improvise on the same raga at the same time. And India doesn't really have large ensembles because it's an improvised art form. You know, a traditional Indian ensemble has the drone, it has the drummer or two drummers, because you could have some complicated rhythmic layers, and one or two melodic instruments, violin, sitar, vocals. But those two are either doing call and response or they're improvising or taking turns. They're not playing melodies and harmonies. Like, that's not how it goes, because it's all improvised. So for me to start writing choral pieces, I started doing the same thing. We started with a Ravi Shankar Tarana, where he actually does it all himself. He plays a line on the sitar and then sings it back. The whole thing is him doing call and response with himself. And so I wrote it out for the singers doing the vocal parts and the instruments doing the, the response in, in unison. And uh, after that, I got a grant to go to India for six weeks. And that was 
my second time in India. My first time there, I was just a tourist. But then I really started learning Southern Indian classical music, which is called Carnatic music. They make a huge deal in India about the difference between Northern Indian classical music and Southern Indian classical music. It might be a bigger difference than like German classical music versus Italian classical music versus French classical music. Or it might be a little more like the difference between classical versus romantic. But I really do think it falls from a Western perspective into a larger genre with subsets rather than them being two completely different genres. But I did study specifically Carnatic music, which also has its own rhythmic solfege system, and then started using the techniques of pop acapella in some of the pieces people have sung, like Desh or Ramkali. What I'm doing is I'm allowing the voices to take over the roles of the drone and the percussion, as well as the melody. Just like in pop acapella, the voices start doing the drumming and the guitar parts and the bass parts of pop songs. So that was the original conception for a lot of these classical Indian pieces, was to just sort of pop a cappella, an Indian traditional classical ensemble. But while I was also in India, I was staying with a group of students and they kept taking me to the movies. And, you know, I had certainly heard Bollywood songs in the restaurants, but I'd never been to the full like four hour movie experience and just dove into how dramatic that all is. And I'm like, well, I've got this instrumental ensemble as well as the choir. And so I started arranging Bollywood pieces as well. When I was in India, I also met this group called the Madras String Quartet in Chennai. They were four Indian guys that were a string quartet, two islands, viola and cello. And they played Mozart and Beethoven, but they also played Indian music on their string instruments. And so I invited them to come to Miami of Ohio to help work with the instrumental ensemble because they really had a different technique. There was so much more sliding, bending of pitches, the kind of ornaments you hear in the vocalises. And all of them were too scared. They were like, what, leave India? No, no, no. And the cellist was like, sign me up. So we flew the cellist out to Miami of Ohio and I had arranged a song. This was in 2003, actually fall of 2002. And I had just arranged a song from the movie Lagan, where the soundtrack was by A.R. Raymond. And Lagan was the first Indian movie to be nominated for an Oscar. And so I thought this would have a little bit of cred, like if I mentioned the movie, people might have heard of it. And it also had a great soundtrack. So I picked that one. And then this cellist, Shaker, was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. I'm the cellist on the soundtrack. <laughs> and there are relatively few cellists in India. There are a billion violinists, but there are relatively few cellists. And so later that year, when A.R. Raymond was on tour in the United States, Shaker was like, your choir needs to come up to Detroit. It was the closest show that was going on to us, and you need to sing this piece for Raymond. And this was in spring of 2003, so three years before he came to most people in the United States' attention for writing the soundtrack to Slumdog Millionaire. That was in 2006. So my choir and my instrumental group, we drove up to Eastern Michigan University, and Raymond at that time was touring the United States with three giant airplanes. He had one for the over 100 performers that he had in his show, and he had two airplanes for the stage set for his show, which was so elaborate that while they were performing in one town, they had to send a second stage set to the next city to be building it there. So they had two completely separate stage sets flying around the United States. The concert hall at Eastern Michigan University seats 6,000 people. The cheapest tickets were $75. The most expensive were $400. There was no advertising that we'd see anywhere. It wasn't on the marquee. It wasn't in the newspaper. The place was completely sold out, and there were no non-Indians in that audience. Well, I, that's a little too far. No non-Asians in that audience. Not a one. And it was like visiting a different world that exists inside the United States. And 
according to Raymond, we were the first non-Asians he had ever seen perform his music. And he burst into tears hearing us sing his piece, uh, Chale Cello from Lagan, which actually talks about the strength of solidarity and coming together in diversity, like we talked about earlier. And he burst into tears and said this was his first evidence that his music could cross cultural boundaries, which is what he'd always wanted. And he hates being referred to as the great Indian film composer. He thinks that that tokenizes him. He doesn't mind being called a great composer or even a film composer because that's his genre. And it's interesting. You read this even in like notes by Tchaikovsky where he felt like he was tokenized. Chopin, too. He was like the trick Polish guy or the trick Russian guy. They were being brought out because they were exotic and not because people really love their music. Like he's not new for this phenomena. But after that concert, he's like, you guys need to come on the rest of the tour with me because he put us on in the concert. And I'm like, well, we got to be back in school on Monday. We can't go on tour with you. And he's like, well, at least come to New York with me tomorrow. I'm like, well, how are we going to get to New York? He's like, simple, get on my plane. There you go. (laughs) So about half the choir decides we're going to go with him to New York and perform at the Nassau Coliseum in New York City, 18,000 seats. And I told my parents, and they're trying to figure out how to get tickets for this thing. And they finally had to go to an Indian grocery store to buy their tickets. And again, this thing sold out, 18,000 people at these crazy ticket prices, and my parents show up, and the guy taking tickets is like, oh, no, ma'am, the auto expo is across the way. (laughs) I mean, I swear to you, my parents were the only two white people in this crowd of 18,000 people. And I just wonder how many worlds like that there are in the United States, where somebody like him can travel, and he doesn't even need to, like, have... It's it's just sort of insane to think about that, that that many people would figure out about this. That was almost 20 years ago. Incredible. Wow. And through knowing him, I mean, I've been exposed to so many Indian musicians in the 20 years since, both on the classical and on the Bollywood side. And I've done shows with him in all kinds of really cool places. And yeah, it's a great collaboration. And then as a mark of ethnic pride, he really started wanting to do more fully orchestral soundtracks and found out that in India, there are a lot of instruments that like nobody played. Like, I'm not kidding. When I met Raymond before he started the KM Conservatory, 1.2 billion people in India and not one single oboe, bassoon, or French horn player in the entire country. Well, oboe lends itself wonderfully to that sonic landscape. Yes. And of course, there are instruments very similar to oboes that are played in India. But yeah, for like the classical orchestra. So, you know, Raymond wanted to have the day and age, which he has now, where he can record his soundtracks and have an all-Indian orchestra. So this is a perfect segue because I want to talk about your involvement with the conservatory in Chennai, and it, mm-hmm. it sounds like this is the way in. Tell us a little bit about that. That's the reason he wanted to create it, is to be able to, like, it was, you know, a little bit selfish on his part. And there were no classical music schools in India. There's, you know, India is still a, um, even when you're learning a Western instrument like violin, it's still very much a guru type thing. You know, you, you have a, a mentor and you, you apprentice at their feet. You don't go to school. And like have a music school. You just study with one person and they, they teach you everything and they teach most things by ear. There are some violinists, especially because of the British occupation, that are certainly able to teach reading music and, you know, to play that way. So you will find things like string quartets. I haven't even really seen a string orchestra in India prior to Raymond because like that large ensemble requires a certain skill set that wasn't being taught there. So a little bit of chamber music. Um, The few choirs that existed in India prior to KM Conservatory were at churches from the very small Christian population of India. And when I say very small, you know, it's 2% of the country, but 2% of a billion people is a lot of people. So uh, the times I've worked with pre-existing choirs, they were very Western. Like, they didn't sing any Indian music. They go to church and they sing the Mozart Ave Verum Corpus, just like all the other church choirs. 
And some of them are Indian, but a lot of them are at least mixture of Western descent, and especially British on the church side of things. But you have a lot of Indians who have gone to England, and a lot of them have converted to Christianity and come home. So there is somewhat of a mix. And of course, you've had proselyting and conversion as well. But you know, the conservatory rapidly turned into a lot of people sort of wanting to study with A.R. Raymond. So trying to get an administrative structure, trying to find stable faculty is, is a challenge. Most of my role now is identifying young people who might like to spend a year or two teaching at conservatory, you know, sort of like a Teach for America or teaching at an international school. But you got to be a little more of a freewheeling personality to operate in India. In addition to what you just said, what what other kind of work do you do at the conservatory or with the conservatory? Right now, very, very little other than just recommending faculty. But earlier on, I was trying to make recommendations for curriculum and trying to get that off the ground, trying to explain what kinds of teachers they were going to need and what kind of a faculty structure they were going to have. Uh, so I was much more involved when they were trying to get it started than I am now. But I'm somebody that they're regularly calling every year and that I'm trying to send people over to India to teach. And like you said at the very beginning, creating wonderful opportunities for young artists in the process of great. So I'm going to veer a little bit peripherally. Would you say that there are other cultural explorations against the backdrop of choral music? Would you say these cultural explorations are the future of choral arts? I think that's going to be tricky to get around to an answer to. There's so many different ways for us to look at this. One way to look at this is that choir is a Western art form, and when we do that, we're impinging or appropriating in some way, and that may be good or bad or some of each. The other thing to look at, well, let's see, the band and the orchestra are clearly constructions of Western Europe. The instruments were built there, they were developed there, but singing in groups is not a Western thing. Every culture in every time period that we know of throughout human history, people have always decided to sing together. So is choir that, or is choir something that uses sheet music and rehearsal? Like how much is a Haitian village gathering where everyone's been taught by ear? How much of that is, is that choral music? Now we're getting into what you're talking about, about the exploration. And if we write down something like an Indian, uh, a Haitian village gathering and sing that, is that choral music or is that appropriation? Is it, is it bastardization of it? Like, I'm not sure I have the answers to these questions. But we sort of need to sort through which of these things might be violating a culture versus respecting a culture versus bringing a culture into the mainstream where they may want it. And I've seen in my own exposure that not every culture reacts the same way. I have yet to have any Indians complain about my Indian music being put onto stage this way. Most of them love it. They see it as, oh my gosh, we're making it onto the main stage of America, which is similar to how my grandparents felt as Jews, seeing their music permeate culture, their food permeate culture as Jewish immigrants. But Native Americans often get very offended when choirs sing their ritual music on stage. Mm-hmm. But not all Native Americans. I have a couple of arrangements that I worked with a Native American woman on whose father was a tribal elder who really believed she should teach the songs to everyone possible or they were going to die. And she and her father believe deeply that we should be singing this music as long as we do it respectfully and understand where it comes from. And other Native Americans don't. They say, no, this is our music. Get your hands off our stuff. And so I don't know that there's a right or a wrong there. But these are complicated ethical issues. And we're beginning to become fully aware of just how much white people in this country have taken from non-white people over the years. And we certainly don't want music to become one of those things where that's how it's perceived, that we're taking from a culture instead of respecting it. 
And how we walk that line, I think, is going to decide the future of this and how many of us can walk this line respectfully, how many people in other cultures feel welcome to this and want to see their music permeating the concert stage. I do think it's important at a lot of levels because, especially at our younger ages, our middle schools and our high schools are so diverse, and we want the music of the students and singers that are in our choir to be on the stage. I do think we want the choir to be a representation of who's in it when a choir is multi-ethnic, rather than, no, if you want to be in choir and you're not white, sorry, you got to learn Western European music. And I mean, I feel this sometimes too. I'm Jewish, but I sing a whole heck of a lot of Christian music. And I actually really love it. And people have asked me about that. Like, how can you sing this music you don't believe in? And that's not really the point, I guess, when you're a performer, like Bach believed in it, and I believe in Bach. And right. I want to, you know, recreate Bach as much as I want to recreate A.R. Raymond. We're always putting ourselves in, in somebody else's shoes. I, I don't want it to be the world where I, as a performer, can only tell my story and be fully narcissistic. But there is a part of this discussion that can get reduced that way, that you only have the right to tell your own story. And I don't see, as we said, how we have empathy or peace unless we make an attempt to tell each other's stories. That's what music has always been about. And then if we tell it badly, we should be open when somebody says, hey, you got to do a better job. And, and if you tell it unknowingly, if you just sing a piece for another culture and do none of the background research, don't learn where it came from, don't learn what the story really is, don't pronounce it correctly, don't translate it for your singers. These are all things we were taught to do for like classical music when it's in another language. I think we need to respect all the music of other cultures. Maybe the biggest sin of the choral world is using world music as token closing numbers because it's loud and fast instead of cultural expression. And I was just going to say, if you decide to tell somebody else's story, then do the homework to make sure you're telling it in a way that they would nod and say yes, that you're telling that story correctly. Well, my colleague Eric Light always says, it's like in math class, show your work. Let the audience know, too, that you did your homework. So that if there's somebody in the audience from that group, they know that their culture is being respected, that they know your singers do that right. work. It's not enough for just the singers to know. I think the audience needs to know, especially at this moment in time. Are there musicians that you consider trailblazers in the choral arts who are pushing the needle forward? Right now, some of the most exciting work that I'm seeing done is in Southeast Asia. There are a lot of really exciting composers and conductors in Singapore and the Philippines and Indonesia. The person that has inspired me the most recently is a guy named Tommy Kandisaputra, who's from Indonesia. And I can write that out for you or I can send you to his website. But he created the Bandung Choral Society, which is Indonesia's version of ACDA. And prior to him, choral music, like in India, was something that sort of went on in church. And people sang Christian music, so it was done by the Christian population. But Indonesia is the world's largest majority Muslim nation. Hmm. And... Over here, we don't pay a lot of attention to them, but there's 250 million people in Indonesia. And most of the Muslims in Indonesia are Sufi. And over here in the news, we hear a lot about Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims, meaning Iran and Iraq. And we hear a lot about how some of the people in those sects like to kill each other, which is true. The same can be said about Jews and Christians. But the vast majority of the world's Muslims are Sufi. And that's the Indian religion that pervades India, Pakistan, and Indonesia. And Sufism has as one of its main tenets pacifism. And it also has a deep, deep musical tradition, folk musical tradition, that runs through all these countries. And, and Afghanistan, and even into Egypt, and through the Middle East, Morocco, all the way into Spain, you'll see a, a lot of that musical influence. A.R. Rahman is also a Sufi Muslim. He was born Hindu and converted to Islam in, in high school. 
But to watch as choral music has become an expression of Indonesia's folk music tradition and these Sufi traditions and their folk traditions. And they have this wild choral festival now that Tommy started, the Bali International Choral Festival. And in 2017, my PSU choir was the first American choir ever to go to this. It's the largest choral festival in Asia. When we went, there were 126 choirs. There was one from Switzerland, us, and 124 Asian choirs. And over 100 of them were from Indonesia. And this was the first year that we went that all, I think there's 51 provinces in Indonesia, similar to our states, every single province had sent a choir for the first time. It would be literally if you were at a choral festival in the U.S. and every single state had sent at least one choir. And a lot of these choirs were brand new. And like a lot of these choirs, we would be instructed to tell our story every time we got there. And so many choirs were like, you know, I was in middle school and I came to this festival and it was great. And then I got to my high school and there was no choir. So I had to start one so we could come to this festival. Like this one man, through creating this organization and this festival, has probably inspired the creation of hundreds of choirs in his country. And this thing is a rock concert, the whole thing. First of all, all the venues have like full rock concert lighting. They have big screens by the side of the stage, you know, with zoom-in cameras. Everywhere we went, we had camera crews following us. Before every concert, there were these videos of choirs, like, warming up and sightseeing with all this big dramatic music, like Pirates of the Caribbean playing. And, like, and I'm like, what the heck? Like, this isn't very exciting. But, you know, frankly, neither is the video of the football players warming up that runs before their games. And at the giant awards summit, they had their own camera drone following us around. The award ceremony was in this giant outdoor plaza in front of the World Peace Gong. They had fire jugglers. They had fireworks. And, like, this is how athletes get treated in our country. And it's a lot of the reason kids sign up for sports. And if we treated our choirs this way, especially from a young age, like, if you're an Indonesian, you're in middle school choir, and you go to this, you get that, like, choir is a certain kind of thing. It's a thing with fireworks and screens and video cameras, and it's, it's important, you know? It's hitting all of those buttons, and it deserves the lighting and the attention. You know, if you go to most middle school choir concerts in the U.S., or even if your middle school choir went to the ACDA National, I mean, it's pretty great, but, but it, it, it's... I mean, th- this to me was just, like, such a transformative thing, and to realize, like, just one person can make that kind of a difference in a country, like, with that kind of, of, of vision and, and, and doing that. It's extraordinary. I think we're going to see more and more. And some people are now, they don't have many graduate programs in East Asia yet. So a lot of their younger people are coming for graduate degrees here. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this. But even a couple of decades ago, the Philippine Madrigal Singers were the choir that had won more international choir competitions than any other choir. Comair from Latvia has edged them out. But still, there's a depth to that choral culture. And uh, there's a lot of them. I think we're going to see the needle maybe not just moving in the United States. I guess the other person that I ran into last year, I've never met him, I want to, his name is Raphael Pichon, um, and he runs this group in France called Pygmalion, or Pygmalion, I don't oh, know. Yes. But yeah, I just saw their recording of the Bach motets, and that it's is like incredible. the most virtuosic, joyous thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, yeah. that may be the first person in a while to like push even that professional choral needle forward in terms of what's possible at that level, because... You know, we sort of had the Eric Erickson, Frieder Bernius generation really move the needle on that sort of thing. And maybe he's next there. Yeah, that recording, in case our listeners want it, is extraordinary. I have not been that excited about Bach in a long time. It's amazing. And then I stupidly got so excited, I tried to make my PSU choir do Zingadame Herring distanced and masked. <laughs> oh, boy. But we did it. All right. So, as you know, 
the podcast is called No Baton Needed. So I ask all the guests about their views and opinions on the baton. If they hate using one, if they dropped it in a performance once, if there's a funny anecdote. What are your views and stories that you have around a baton or a lack of one, et cetera? Well, it's something that I actually teach. I think there are clear pluses and minuses to using a baton or not using a baton. And I think we're in a society that wants right and wrong answers, but I think most things just have pluses and minuses and things you do are going to you know, give you a benefit in one area and a deficit in the other. I think it makes sense that orchestra conductors and band directors use batons and we don't, but I think the orchestra world is evolving faster than we do. A baton is obviously easier to see from far away than an open hand. And when you think about singers singing on choral risers, each row of singers is only about 18 inches deep if we're on traditional choral risers. So even a four-row choir, a large choir that's in four rows, the front-to-back row of that choir is six feet deep. But an orchestra, every player with their music stand in front of them, if you look at those risers platforms they use, each row of an orchestra is four feet deep. So if you're going five stands back in violins, that back person is 20 feet away, let alone the winds and brass. So orchestra and band players, the back rows are farther away from the conductor. So seeing the baton from farther away, batons are also better for precision because the point of the baton is a very clear point, whereas there's many points on your hand. Is it the tip of your second finger, third finger, wrist? Where is the point that we're looking at? So I do think batons give us more precision. Also, batons extend our wrist. And our wrist is the joint in our arm capable of the most fine motion. Without a baton, moving your wrist is very hard to see from far away and kind of meaningless. So if you're focused on precision, I think the baton is the way to go. However, if you want a real legato, it's your shoulder joint, the ball and socket joint, and really the joint from your, uh, the center of your body from your sternum, where your shoulder attaches with all those broad muscles across your chest and back. That's the joint you're going to use from legato. And when you put a baton in your hand and you move from your shoulder, it gets very big. So a baton makes true legato very clumsy. And a lot of conductors try to do legato from your wrist, but it is very hard to really move your breath, move a line from the wrist the way you can from the shoulder. The voice is the most legato instrument there is. We've never managed to create another instrument as legato as the voice. And so choral music tends to be slower in legato. In fact, I think a challenge for a lot of choir directors is getting enough non-slow pieces into a concert to keep the audience sort of engaged back and forth. I also think it's the reason my pieces sell well is because they're fast and there's just a dearth of fast choral music. If I wrote slow music, I'd have to compete with Eric Whitaker. And that's a, being doomed. But I see so many orchestral conductors like Carlos Calamar, who I mentioned earlier, and even Leonard Bernstein doing this, conducting with a baton until they get to the slow movement and at the slow movement putting down the baton because they know they can get a better legato without that baton. And being seen from far away is less crucial when the music isn't as rhythmic and precise. For band music, brass, percussion, the attack of those instruments has to be precise and together or it's a mess. And the same thing, I guess, is true for singers and their consonants, but the voice is not that articulate. There is no vocal music of rhythmic complexity like a band piece. Even Carmina Burana doesn't come close to how much precision is required for most fast band music. So I do think those pluses and minuses work out. Choir directors have singers that are closer to them and they're doing legato. So it makes sense to not use a baton. You can do that legato better. But if I were to conduct Carmina Burana, I would use a baton. The problem for me is since I use one so little, I don't have as much practice with it. And it is a different technique. And it is because it's using that wrist versus using the shoulder. 
Where and when could our listeners tune in to hear upcoming performances of your work? This year, it's going to be much easier than other years because we are going to do what I'm sure a lot of people are. Even though we are hoping to perform for live audiences and sort of assuming we're going to, we are going to broadcast everything on the internet. So for the organ repertory singers, uh, we've already figured that all out. And if you go to orsingers.org, those streams should be available soon. Our first concert's at the end of October. So that would be good. And then if you go to psuchamberchoir.com, we haven't even started school yet at PSU. And we haven't had the guts to announce our concert schedule until we're convinced that we're not going to get locked down again. Uh, but hopefully in early November, we should have an online concert available. But of course, the best thing to do is just move to Portland. So it's a good, 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 place, to, good place to escape climate change. Then we got concerts all the time. We have several alums that now live in Portland. So I will point them in your direction for sure. That would be great. And uh, yeah, someday I hope to make it to a Choral Project concert in person instead of just uh, listening to your recordings online. But yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great group. We always do a lightning round at the end. Sure. Quick fire questions. So here we go. Favorite season of the year? Uh, fall. Favorite Indian dish? Uh, chicken tikka masala. Favorite fall beverage? Oh, that's a hard one. Coffee, but I don't know how that's different than any other. <laughs> Favorite book? Hmm. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, my gosh. Or, but he hasn't finished it yet, The Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. The best fantasy <gasps> epic I've ever read, but he's only written the first four books. Very and there's going to cool. be a fifth. Favorite restaurant in Portland? Le Pigeon. Or, sorry, they call it Le Pigeon, even though it's got a, <laughs> a French name. <laughs> Favorite instrument to listen to? Cello. Favorite superhero? Spider-Man. Favorite childhood Halloween costume? Robin Hood. Favorite winter pastime? Sledding. And, last but not least, favorite piece to conduct? Well, I mean, the favorite piece that I would love to conduct, but I'm never going to get to, is Mahler 2. Are you saying my favorite piece that I actually have conducted? Any answer is good. Well, Mahler 2 someday, hopefully, but otherwise, it's Arnold Sevier's Arrangement of Precious Lord is my favorite piece I have conducted. I don't know that. I'm going to have to check that out. Well, Ethan, thank you for taking time and answering some wonderful questions and letting us get into that amazing brain of yours and find out more about you and your craft and philosophies around this amazing art. It's been a real honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for being interested. It's an honor to be on this podcast. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Thank you. We love it. And we start choir on Monday, so this is helping me rev up for that. I'm really excited. <laughs> No Baton Needed is hosted by the Coral Project's founder and artistic director, Daniel Hughes. Our executive producer is the Coral Project's marketing director, Wilson Alexander Aguilar. And I, Chris Wilmore, am the executive audio engineer and sometimes host of the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.